Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Had a great vacation. It was very refreshing. But you know, as they say, there's no place like home. Yeah, amen. So I am so pumped up about the next 10 weeks because we're going to be talking about what is crucial, what is foundational for this church, Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. You know, we say it all the time. We are here to help imperfect people, people like you, people like me, do life with a perfect God so that we can experience life in all its fullness, what the Bible calls abundant life. And the goal of this series is to help build a clearer understanding of what it is we believe and how we are to live as followers of Jesus. And so the best place to start is with this crucial question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Arbeit macht frei. Arbeit macht frei. Now, I'm not speaking in tongues, okay? (laughs) But those were the words that were written above the entryways to the concentration camps in Auschwitz and Dachau. It's German for work makes free. Work equals liberation. Work will give you freedom. It was a lie, of course, a false hope. The Nazis made the people believe that if they worked hard enough, they would be liberated. But the promised liberation was really horrifying suffering and death. Arbeit macht frei. That little phrase is actually the spiritual lie of all ages. It is a satanic lie. It's a religious lie. It's a false hope, an impossible dream held by so many people. They believe that if their good works outweigh their bad works, that one day they're going to be able to stand before God in eternity and say, you owe me the right to enter into heaven. It's the hope of every false religion, people. Arbeit macht frei. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that all of us, all of mankind has fallen short of God's perfect standard. And no amount of good works, no amount of arbeit will save your soul. That's the bad news. But today we're going to look at some hardcore good news. This is the foundation of our belief as Christians, what the Bible calls the gospel, which means good news. And what we're going to talk about today may sound a bit technical, but let me tell you, it's extremely important. So we're going to begin over in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Paul writes this. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, anytime you see that little word, but you ought to stop and ask yourself, why is it there? It means pay attention. I'm going to give you a new thought. You see, Paul has been building a systematic logical case in the first three chapters of Romans against all mankind. He's saying that everybody is guilty, no one is innocent, all have sinned, so all need to be saved. And then in Romans 3.21, he says, but now. And thank God for those two words. This is the turning point in the book of Romans. Paul is now going to address the pressing question, how do I get right with God? How do you get right with God? I mean, so far, Paul's been building this case against mankind, and it's been getting darker and darker and darker. But then we read, but now and the light comes shining through. And just as a big door swings on little hinges, 
So important theological statements in the Bible often depend on little words like prepositions and articles. In fact, many of the great doctrines of Scripture revolve around a single word, grace, atonement, faith. So correct interpretation of biblical truth depends upon a correct understanding of the words used to convey those truths. And I actually ran across a poignant reminder of how incorrect words can lead to incorrect understanding. These are actual notes from hospital charts, most likely written by some sleepy intern or frazzled nurse. Let me read a few to you. First one is this. She is numb from her toes down. (laughs) Help me out with that one. Okay. I saw your patient today who is still under our car for physical therapy. That's kind of brutal. Patient has two teenage children, but no other abnormalities. (laughs) Can I hear an amen for those of you who have teenagers? Yeah, okay. Figured you could relate to that one. While in ER, she was examined, X-rated, and sent home. I don't even want to go there. Rectal examination revealed a normal-sized thyroid. If you know where your thyroid is... Occasional, constant, infrequent headaches. All right, which one is it, right? She stated that she had been constipated for most of her life until she got a divorce. I might get a few amens on that one, but let's, let's, let's not go there. And then finally, the, the lab test indicated abnormal lover function. Okay. Can we all agree that words are extremely important. So thank God that Proverbs 30 and verse five says, every word of God is flawless. And people, there are three words in our passage today that you cannot afford to miss. They describe the three miracles that God does for you, that God does for me when we are saved from eternal death, justification, redemption, and atonement. Justification, redemption, atonement. We're gonna talk about each of those terms in depth. But in Romans 3, Paul brings out nine incredible truths related to our salvation. So we're going to walk through each of these. You ready? I want you to write these down. First of all, salvation is designed by God. Paul talks about a righteousness from God. The first thing we can say for sure about our salvation is that it was designed by him. Man didn't think it up. Man didn't take the initiative. It wasn't our ingenuity. This whole plan of salvation we're going to look at today was designed by God. Second, salvation is unearned. It's a righteousness apart from the law. Back in verse 20, we read that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, there were actually three kinds of laws, moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. And Paul says that none of those laws are gonna get you into heaven. But so many people try to get to heaven by their own good works. Right? They're trying to keep the Ten Commandments or, or maybe obey everything Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you have to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Good luck with that one. Well, Paul says that this righteousness that comes from God has nothing to do with observing laws. And everyone who has ever been saved has been saved apart from obeying rules. Salvation, people, is unearned. Unearned. Third, Paul says salvation is not a secret. A righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Interesting. Salvation is not a newly revealed secret. It's been around a long time. People have been saved all throughout history. 
Now it's revealed more fully in Jesus Christ, but the law and the prophets testify to this. And by the way, that phrase law and the prophets was a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. You know, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11 backs up what Paul's saying here, that this message, you can't earn your way into heaven, had been taught back in the Old Testament. Peter writes this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Circle the word grace. See, the Old Testament talks about grace. The prophets searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances in which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. See, the whole Bible teaches the same thing. You're saved by grace through faith. It's not unique to the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system made it abundantly clear that somebody was gonna die for somebody else. And there's actually an entire book in the New Testament written specifically to tell us how to come to Jesus. It's the book of John. And 32 times in this book, we're told how to receive salvation. For instance, John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And of course, John three sixteen. right? We know that, a lot of us know that makes it clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now the word belief here in the Greek, it's the term pistis. It means the same thing as faith and trust. When you see those three terms, belief, faith, and trust, they're essentially the same. It is the conviction that something is true. That's what belief is. It's the conviction that something is true. So faith in Christ, the kind that saves you from eternal death, the kind that offers you forgiveness, assurance, eternal life is simply this, believing Jesus is who he claimed to be, the son of God, and that he did what he claimed to do, died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And the minute, the moment you put your faith, your belief, your trust in Jesus, you are saved. Now, sometimes we get a little pushback on this, and I think that's pretty natural. I mean, there isn't anything else in life that you get simply by believing. And so people say, well, is it really that simple? And the answer is yes, it's a simple message. There is nothing you do apart from believing to receive salvation. But it's not always simple to get there. I mean, it means you gotta believe that God exists, that 2,000 years ago he came to this earth in the person of Jesus, lived the perfect life you couldn't live, died on the cross for your sins, came back to life three days later. That's not exactly easy for some people to believe. And that brings us to our fourth point. Salvation is by faith. Verse 22 this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at how many times the word faith is used in this passage, you begin to realize that the whole of the Christian life can be summed up in that one word, faith, belief, trust. In fact, all the other religions of the world revolve around the word do, but the Christian life revolves around the word believe. It's not a matter of what we do. It's a matter of believing what Jesus has already done. Have you ever asked someone, are you a Christian? And they say, well, I'm trying. Okay, people, that answer doesn't fit into the Christian formula. It's like being pregnant. You either are or you aren't, all right? I suppose you could be trying, but that's a different story. It's not a matter of trying. It's a matter of trusting. And let me take a little aside here. I think there are two common mistakes people make when it comes to faith in Jesus. One is when they say, well, I, I don't know if I have enough faith. You know what? 
It really doesn't matter how much or how little faith you have. It's not the amount of faith. It's the object of your faith that counts. It's not the amount. It's the object of your faith that counts. Jesus says if you have but a mustard seed of faith, you can move mountains. It's not a matter of the size of your faith. It's a matter of the size of your God. doesn't matter how much faith you have. It's where you place the faith you have. And let me tell you, everybody in this room right now has faith. You have faith. I have faith. You had faith when you sat down in that chair today that it would hold you up. You had faith when you drove to church this morning. Faith in properly functioning traffic lights, faith in your car engine, faith in your spouse's driving ability maybe. You had faith when you ate your oatmeal this morning that your wife didn't poison it. Everybody has faith. The only question is who or what are you putting your faith in? Now, the second mistake people make is putting faith in faith. (laughs) No, it's faith in a person. Your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. See, faith doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And by the way, it's not just faith in God. It's faith in Jesus, trusting that Jesus Christ, God's son, died on the cross for your sins and rose again, and that he guarantees eternal life to all who believe in him. That's the gospel. That's what we're called to believe in. Nothing more and nothing less. And I want to make this as clear as possible because I know from talking with people so, so often, people hear faith in Christ, but in their mind, they add this little list of things to it. And some of these I'm going to share with you may sound very familiar to you, but let me tell you, faith in Christ, the faith that saves you, it's not faith plus anything. The reformers said sola fide, faith alone. So let me walk through a few. It's not faith plus promising to serve God. It's not that. It's not faith plus making Jesus Lord of all my life. Heard a lot of people say that. I've yet to see someone who really has Jesus as Lord of all their life. It's not faith plus praying. It's not faith plus feeling sorry for your sins. It's not faith plus turning from your sins. It's not faith plus inviting Jesus into your heart. You know, our youngest son did that, Nathan. We were so excited for him. He said, yeah, I invited Jesus into my heart. Then he told us he invited George of the Jungle in there. And I don't know how many other characters were in there. I was like, oh man, that one didn't work. It's not faith plus promising to do good works or doing good works or faith plus baptism. It's not that. It's not faith plus walking an aisle. It's not faith plus public confession. It's not faith plus joining a church. Salvation really is a free gift of God given to anyone and everyone who simply believes. Here's a way to illustrate the difference between faith and works, all right? Let's say that you're in a building. You want to get to the top floor, the 20th floor. And so you walk over, you hit the elevator button, you wait for the elevator to come down, and you get on that elevator, okay? But you only take that elevator up three floors, okay? Then you get off and you decide, you know what? I'm going to climb some stairs on my own. And then you climb the stairs for three floors, and then you get back on the elevator again, you take it up for another three floors, then you get off and you climb the stairs for another three floors. That would be silly, right? But that's how so many people try to get saved. They trust in Jesus for a while, then work real hard, then trust in Jesus, then work. No, once you get on that elevator, you stay on that elevator and you trust that it'll get you all the way to the top, all the way to heaven. Fifth, salvation is available to everybody. It says this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It is a universal gospel. Salvation is for everybody. Everybody needs it. 
and everybody can have it. It's there for some who believe. No. It's there for many who believe. No. It's there for all who believe. Again, not all who believe and work real hard. It's not faith plus works. Sixth, write this down. Salvation is necessary. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, the two verbs here are in two different tenses. Let me give you a little grammar lesson this morning. In English, we've got past, present, future tense. In the Greek language, they actually had nine different tenses. And each one was distinct and purposeful. My undergraduate major was in Greek, and I love the Greek language because it's the most precise technical language known to man. And the verb tense here, when Paul says all have sinned, it's called the aorist tense. It means it's past it's over, it's a once and for all situation, all have sinned, that's an established fact. But then when Paul says, and fall short, this is now in the present tense, and it's actually in a specific present tense that indicates ongoing continual action. It means we are continually falling short, falling short, falling short, falling short. And both of these words in the Greek are athletic terms. The word sin, hemartone, it's actually used of archery, that when you would shoot an arrow and it missed the bullseye, right? <laughs> arrow fell short and missed the mark. You would yell, Hamarton, which means it sinned. The arrow fell short. It missed the mark. Most of the time when I shoot a basketball, the ball sins, all right? <laughs> it misses the mark. Now, <laughs> the word translated fall short here, another athletic term, hysteria. It means to fall behind in a race. See, the Bible says we've all fallen behind God's perfect standard. To be good enough to get to God, you would have to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. All fall short. And sure, I would admit some make it further than others. I have no doubt there are many people in this world who are more moral than I am, more upright than I am. But thank God I'm not trying to get there by my own effort because all fall short. I don't live up to my own standards, much less God's. I disappoint myself, let alone God. Now, what exactly is the glory of God here? Okay, different scholars have different opinions on this one. Personally, I believe this is a reference to the way God originally created mankind to be. He's talking about God's ideal. That when God made mankind in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve brought glory to God because they were perfect. They had a perfect relationship, but then they blew it. They sinned and the glory was lost. Fall short of the glory of God means we fall short of God's ideal. We sin and fall short of the potential that he's put into each of our lives. And so salvation is necessary to restore that glory. Seventh, <clears throat> salvation is undeserved. And now people, we are getting into the meat of this passage. Let me tell you, Romans 3.24 is one of the most significant verses in all of Scripture. See, we're told here that we are justified freely by his grace. Our salvation is undeserved. We get it freely by God's grace. That Greek word there, freely, doreon, it also can be translated as without a cause. Again, only used one other time in the New Testament. It's over in John 15, 25, when Jesus says, the people hated me without a cause. So what does it mean when God justifies us freely? It means without a cause. You didn't do anything to earn it. It's unmerited. It is undeserved. Some of you may remember when your kids were preschoolers and you would ask them, why did you do that? 
And he would look at you and say, because, right? And you're thinking that's a comma, like he's going to give you some kind of reason behind that. The kid thinks it's a period, because. Like you're supposed to be satisfied with that. Because why? Because, as if that's enough. Well, guess what? That's actually a biblical answer. (laughs) You say, why are you justified? God says, because. Because I feel like it. Because I made a promise to you. If you dig deep enough, you'll find that God's reason for saving us, it's actually rooted in his character, particularly his loving nature. It goes back to John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay, back to Romans. What about this word justified here? People, this is a huge term in the Bible. In the first three chapters of Romans, it's used three times as a verb, four times as a noun. This is a key term in Paul's letter. It's a legal term. It's a term used in a courtroom. It means to declare not guilty. It literally means to make right. It's the legal act of God declaring guilty people guiltless. God acquitting mankind. That's what it is. And you see, justification, it changes our whole standing, our whole position before God. Let's talk about this a little bit. There are three ways that we're justified. Real quick. First of all, we are justified by grace. Verse 24 says, and are justified freely by his grace. Paul uses that word grace more than a hundred times in his letter. It's the Greek term charis from which we get our English word charity. In the Greek, grace is a free, undeserved gift. We don't deserve to be declared not guilty, but God graciously acquits us. It's his gift to us. Second, we're justified by his blood. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The source of our justification is God's grace, but the grounds for our justification is the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And then finally, we're justified by faith. The condition of our justification is found in verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith. See, Jesus shed his blood to make it possible for God to extend grace to us. But the means by which we appropriate this justification to our lives is our faith. So we're justified three ways, people, by grace, by his blood, and by faith. And it's really important to note here that this term justified is in the passive tense, which means it's something that happens to us. We don't work for it. God declares us innocent, not guilty. And justification is more than just forgiveness. It means there is absolutely no longer any case against you. All the charges have been dropped. You're in perfect standing with God. Okay, let's move on to the next wonderful truth. Salvation is through Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. See, our salvation, it comes through a person, Jesus. Look at the end of verse 24. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Doesn't come through a religion. Doesn't come through baptism. Doesn't come through rituals. Doesn't come through a bunch of do's and don'ts. Our salvation comes through a person, Jesus Christ. And there's a second key term here. Redemption. You say, what is redemption? Well, the Greek word apoluo, it means to release by paying a ransom. And it was used in two different ways in Paul's day. Primarily, it referred to the slave market in the Roman Empire. 
don't know if you know this or not, but back in the first century, over half the population of Rome was slaves. And if you had the money, you could go out and you could buy a slave off of that auction block and you had total rights to do as you willed with that slave. But first, you paid a redemption, a price to release that slave from his original owner. And then you could either take the slave home with you or you could let that, set that slave free. According to the Bible, Jesus paid the ransom price for us and then set us free. How many of you remember blue or green chip stamps? Raise your hand. You're going to date yourself here. Okay, raise it up high. Be proud. Okay. Yeah. Back in the day, you could get them everywhere, right? Like even at gas stations. And what you would do is you would save up these stamps and then eventually you would take them to the green chip redemption center, right? And there you would trade in those stamps and you would redeem some beautiful lamp or something that you would take home with you. I mean, that's what redemption is all about. You or somebody else pays a price. In this case, God paid the price for us to redeem us, to set us free from our sin. The word redemption is also used in another way we're familiar with, kidnapping, the taking of hostages. You know, when some plane gets hijacked in the Middle East, they land, they say, we'll give you these people back in exchange for a certain number of people. Okay, that's a transaction of redemption, somebody paying the price for somebody else. Well, the Bible says that in a very real way, every unbeliever is a hostage. They're held hostage to the devil. And only Jesus can set them free. Only Jesus can redeem the lost. And you know what the price for that was? His life. Which brings us to our final point today. Salvation is expensive. Salvation is free, but it's not free. Right? It costs God a lot. It's a free gift to us, but somebody had to pay dearly for that gift, and that somebody was Jesus. Romans 3.25 says, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. And there's the final key word here, atonement. Again, only used one other time in the New Testament over in the book of Hebrews, but it's used all throughout the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament term, kapur. You probably heard Yom Kippur. That means the day of atonement. And we don't have a lot of time to get into this, but a very limited definition of atonement is this, to satisfy, to satisfy. There's a penalty, there's a price that has to be satisfied. When you break man's laws, you pay man's penalty. When you break God's laws, you pay God's penalty. And God says the penalty for sin is death. So the question of atonement is this, how in the world can a totally perfect, totally righteous, totally just God forgive us and judge our sin at the same time? How does he get away with that? That's the most important question you could ever ask. See, God, when he forgives us, can't just say, hey, don't sweat it. It's no big deal. Eh, forget about it, right? No, God is totally just. He has to have a reason to forgive us. There has to be a basis for it. And the answer is found in that one word, atonement. Jesus provided the atonement. He satisfied the penalty, the price for our sins on that cross when he shed his blood and made salvation possible. So there you have it. Nine incredible truths related to our salvation. Salvation is designed by God, unearned, not a secret, by faith, available to everybody, necessary, undeserved, through Jesus alone. And finally, it's expensive. You say, what has God done for us? Well, nine incredible things in our salvation. We ought to be so grateful for that. We ought to be so full of praise.
Let's thank him for that right now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the truths. Just in these few verses of Romans, we find nine incredible truths, nine incredible acts of grace, nine incredible things that you have done for us through salvation. And I can't thank you enough for verse 21, that little phrase, but now. But now, that in spite of all of our sin, in spite of the fact that we all deserve to be separated from you for all eternity, you made a way back to you. It's not the end of the story. And God, there may be people here this morning who for the first time have heard the message that it's by faith alone. It has nothing to do with how good they are, how bad they are, what promises they make, what sin they may have to give up, that they can come before you. And it's simply by believing that you are who you claim to be, the son of God, and you did what you claim to do. You died for their sins. If that's you this morning, just in the quietness of your heart, I would encourage you to just say, Jesus, I'm done trusting in myself. I believe you paid the price in full for me. I believe when you died on that cross, you died for my sins. And in believing that, I believe that you've forgiven me and given me eternal life. Lord, for the rest of us here today, we, we can't thank you enough for all you've done for us. That you declared us not guilty, innocent. You justified us through Jesus. That you redeemed us, you bought us. We were slaves to our sin, slaves to the enemy. And you redeemed us purchase this back. I thank you, Jesus, that you satisfied the penalty. You atoned for our sins on the cross and that we're forgiven. And we no longer have to walk around under a cloud of condemnation because the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God, I pray that today we would see ourselves as a new creation in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.